Hello and welcome back to another episode here on Authentic Spoon Nutrition. My name is Tess Keatley and I am your host. I am an accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist from Australia. This podcast series is for anyone interested in nutrition science. Now, the theme for this podcast today is all things sports nutrition. I asked you guys to ask me on my Instagram at authentic underscore spoon what you guys would like to hear and this was a very highly requested topic. I have also saved all of your sports nutrition questions that we will answer later on in the podcast. Um, So keep listening if you'd like to hear your question answered. So this podcast will involve a discussion around many different sports nutrition principles. So we're going to talk about what to eat before and after a workout, supplements, if you actually need them, and we'll talk about some of the biggest dietary mistakes you could be making and how you can eat to improve your overall performance and many more great questions. However, just a quick disclaimer before we get into it. Um, This information is for educational purposes only, so it's not to treat any pertaining medical conditions. If you do require medical advice, please seek assistance from your medical practitioner. Now, I have a very special guest here on today's episode who I know you guys are going to love. So let me introduce Steph Cronin. Now, Steph is also an accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist. However, Steph has gone and completed further studies to become an accredited sports dietitian. Steph is also a level one ISAC anthropometrist and is also an accredited sweat profiler. So a little bit about Steph's background. After graduating from USC, initially Steph started out working in a clinical hospital setting. However, soon transitioned into private practice to pursue her dreams of helping clients prevent diseases and optimize their sports performance through nutrition. And she went ahead to become an accredited sports dietitian. So Steph has worked with Swimming Australia, Queensland Swimming, um, USC Spartans High Performance Swimming, USC High Performance Paralympic Swimming, the Queensland National Ballet, and numerous clubs and associations here on the Sunshine Coast, including triathlon squads, swimming squads, surf lifesaving clubs, and Sunshine Coast AFL. So Steph is someone who definitely gets it when it comes to training several times a week and even twice a day, and she understands the determination every athlete has to put in into balancing work, training, and personal life, and all of those things in between. Today, Steph runs her own business called Perform Dietetics. So you can find Steph on Instagram and Facebook if you search at Perform Dietetics. So welcome, Steph. Hi, Tess. Thank you for having me along today. No worries. I'm glad you're here. So I'll just quickly introduce you guys to how Steph and I actually know each other. So I originally met Steph when I was in my first year of uni, and Steph was in her fourth, um, and she actually sold me a textbook. So Steph and I actually have a lot of mutual friends here on the Sunshine Coast, and we're now actually very good friends. So if we start (laughs) laughing throughout this... um, we were just chatting about normally we would be, you know, having a wine on a Saturday instead of working. So just be prepared if we kind of go off script. But yeah, so let's start off, shall we? So Steph, a bit of an informal question first. What did you have for breakfast? What does a sports dietitian have for breakfast? Well, this morning was a little bit different. I was out for breakfast at my favorite cafe um, on the Sunshine Coast, which is Harvest. Um, so I was actually having their corn pea and feta um, fritters for breakfast but that's not something that I would normally have every single day of the week but they were delicious yum I think I've actually had those they're so that's good so yummy they? 
All right. Well, can you tell um, the audience what actually inspired you um, into getting into sports dietetics? Yeah, sure. So I guess my story probably started quite a while ago when I was pretty young, um, probably before I even finished high school. Um, I realized that I was really interested in the nutrition side of things. Um, my background is predominantly surf lifesaving and swimming. So I was training um, sort of upwards of sort of 14 times a week, sometimes up to 16 times a week. Um, And I think the biggest thing for me was obviously trying to be better than the person standing next to me on a a start line. So Mm -hmm. um, I was trying to think of what I was not doing that everyone else was or what I could be doing that somebody else wasn't. So that's where my sort of, um, I guess, sporting nutrition spark sort of came Mm -hmm. alive um, because I just thought, thought, you know, Everyone else is training just as hard as me. I can't fit in any more training sessions um, and, and still be, you know, still trying to finish high school and things like that and then going into university. So I thought, all right, I'm just going to start looking at what I eat. And, and probably one of the biggest things is noticing the fluctuation in my body composition from mm. training that often to then getting to off season and, and not training at all. Um, and I'm very open with, about that with my clients because I see people battle with that. But you know, I think there were times, you know, I could easily put on kilos o- over a two week period just mm-hmm. by having no training. So, um, so I started to realize that the training component had a massive part, but also what I was eating was, was playing a significant role in my body composition, how I felt, how I trained, how I recovered. And, and just also my, you know, my energy levels throughout the day, regardless of sport. So that really got me really intrigued about, okay, what could this nutrition stuff be doing for my performance? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's something that a lot of people um, don't realize is how much uh, that nutrition can actually have an impact on your overall performance. Um, Can actually confirm, Steph is very competitive as well. On Australia Day, we were um, seeing how many laps we could do in the pool and Steph beat all of the boys. So can confirm very good and very competitive. Um, Can't help it. So um, I know that a lot of student dietitians will be listening to this um, who may be interested in um, starting a career in sports dietetics. Can you tell us the process um, and what's kind of involved to become a sports dietitian in Australia? Yeah, really good question. Um, It's a bit of a process, but if you're interested in sports nutrition, then I highly recommend it. Um, So once you have graduated, you do your four-year Uh, nutrition and dietetics degree as per normal so bachelor of nutrition and dietetics then you need to be working for two years until you can go and do the sports nutrition course so the sports nutrition course is run down at canberra at the ais so once you've completed that course you then have to be working for another one to two years as a provisional sports dietitian and there's a whole heap of um provision sorry professional development points that you need to basically tick off until you can become an accredited sports dietitian. So it's a bit of a process, um, but it's well and truly worth it and you learn a lot. And there are some amazing sports dietitians in Australia that um, have been fantastic mentors for me. So it's been um, a very, you know, fulfilling um, and enjoyable journey. And it, it's intense, um, but it's if you're interested in sports nutrition, it's, it's highly worth it. Yeah. I think that's really important too is that um, – Say you do want to go see a dietitian, it's really important to go to go see one that specialises in whatever it is the concern that you have. For example, um, if you're taking your kid to see a dietitian, highly recommend going and seeing a, a paediatric dietitian. Um, then again, if you are an elite athlete, I would definitely go and see a sports dietitian. 
Um, so the next question I have for you, Steph, um, this is a burning question that um, a lot of my followers ask me on Instagram. And that is, what should we typically be eating before we work out and after we work out? Yeah, another great question. Um, and it's definitely valid because I think whether you're an elite sports person or if you're just someone who's active and goes to the gym or goes running on things like that, what you eat before and after can, can play a really, really significant part in how you feel throughout that session, then how you recover, and then how you just do your everyday sort of day-to-day activities for the rest of the day. So if that means you've got to go to school or uni or work, what you're eating before and after a workout can play such an important part in that. So before we exercise or before we train, it's um, it's very important that we consume, you know, some form of fuel. Um, the time to, to consume, sorry, the time that we want to consume that before a workout is very individualized. So some people who train in the morning just cannot tolerate having things mm. in their stomach. Um, and I guess probably the, the most important um, thing that I should have mentioned is depending how hard that session is and, and what you're trying to get out of that session. So you know, when I'm talking to athletes, we, we try and plan around their quality sessions or the hardest sessions of the week. And, and they're the ones that we really want to fuel for. And then there will be some recovery sessions that may not require a whole lot of fuel going into those sessions. So for the general population, if you're just doing, you know, your morning gym sessions and things like that, then again, it, it depends how you feel. Some people definitely feel better on an empty stomach. Um, but if that's the case, then they need to be mindful of what they've eaten the night before. So what I mean by that is making sure we have some form of carbohydrates before we exercise or before we train. And we know there's been plenty of studies on this that having carbohydrates before training and before a workout makes us push harder and, and is going to give us performance. So, so, Sorry, for those listening who aren't familiar with what carbohydrates are, can you just quickly give us an example of yeah. a couple of carbohydrates? Absolutely. And again, this is very individualized and it's got to be something that is more of a simple carbohydrate. So something that can sit really well in the gut and that is going to break down relatively quickly because if there's you know, something like a banana or some fresh dates or any sort of fruit um, is, is a really good start because we know that those sugars or those carbohydrates that are in the fruit break down relatively well. They mm-hmm. sit well in the gut. So what I mean by sit well in the gut is that if you're going to go out for a 10K run and you've got some efforts within that 10K run, you don't want to be sitting there with a bowl of pasta in your stomach because it just feels really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's not actually going to provide the sort of energy that we're looking for if you're going to eat sort of 30 minutes before a training session. But if you're someone who doesn't like any food in their stomach whatsoever before a training session, then having something like pasta or some brown rice or some you know longer lasting carbohydrates the night before at dinner is also a really good idea as well. Mm-hmm. So that those muscles are being topped up with what we like to call glycogen, mm-hmm. um, which is essentially what's going to provide fuel. So in a nutshell, before training and before exercise, we're always looking for some form of carbohydrate. Um, it's very individualized how long you have that food, um, how long before a workout you have that food. So some people can, you know, smash down a peanut butter sandwich mm-hmm. and, and just go training and, and not, you know, feel it at all. Other people, it has to be an hour or two before. But if you're training at 5 a.m., you're not going to wake up at 3 to have a quick snack. Yeah. So that's when having high-carb dinner the night before might be a good idea. Mm-hmm. And again, if it's an easy session, then you might not have to fuel for that session so much. Um, and after training, this is where it can get um, really interesting. And this is something that I see 
people um, either doing very, very well and potentially over-consuming on protein. So we all know that protein helps recover. That That's kind of a pretty basic fact. Um, but I also think that we don't need crazy, crazy amounts. Um, I think that's a big misconception too that um, the Australian population, we eat way too much protein as it is anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess what I see probably with athletes is if it's a night session, um, most athletes tend to eat huge amounts of protein at dinner. So think your typical sort of rugby player, um, mm-hmm. go home and have you know massive piece of steak. Um, and we're just going to get far too much protein for what the body typically needs. And again, that's going to depend on the size of the athlete, but generally, um, when, I, when we look at breakfast, that's usually a meal that in most breakfasts are, are quite high in carbohydrates, but also low in protein. Mm-hmm. So you'll notice, you know, you might have a bowl of cereal and you might get roughly one cup of milk there. So for most people, that's probably not going to be a whole lot of protein. Um, and if you're training really hard, then it's definitely not going to get a whole lot of protein. Mm-hmm. Um, so post-training, very important that we want to refuel a little bit with some more carbohydrates. Um, and that also depends when your next session is. So if you are training twice a day, most days of the week, then it is important to be getting in that recovery meal within sort of 30 minutes to one hour. Um, but if you're just doing normal sort of gym sessions five mornings a week um, and not doing any night sessions, then you don't have to rush home and get in breakfast within 30 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. You're not going to miss that critical window because you have a full 24 hours to recover. So I think, you know, if you train twice a day, get in that meal quite quickly and we're wanting to get a combination of both protein and carbohydrates. So a really good example would be most people probably have some sort of cereal or muesli or toast or eggs or something like that. So a good example of how to get both of those things would be some eggs on toast. Yeah. Um, eggs being your protein, carbohydrates, um, toast being your carbohydrates. Um, if you are going to have muesli or cereal or something like that, then you're always trying to pair that with a really um, good quality protein. So yogurt is a perfect mm. example. Um, and the benefits of having yogurt is that we've got a little bit of whey, case, uh, whey protein and we've got a little bit of casein protein. So these types of proteins are absorbed differently in the body. One's absorbed quite quickly, which is going to help you recover quickly. And then one's um, absorbed quite slowly into the body. So it helps you recover for, for longer. Yeah. So it's a little bit more complicated than let's all just eat fruit before training mm-hmm. and let's all eat yogurt and muesli after training. Um, everyone's really different. Everyone has different requirements of how much carbohydrate they need and also how much protein they need. Um, but in a, in a general sort of overview, carbs before training, carbs and protein after training. Yeah, cool. All right, so speaking of protein um, and in my experience of um, working with the everyday population, so not athletes because I'm not a sports dietitian, um, I see a majority of people already are getting enough protein in their diets. Um, and as I said before, we generally overconsume protein. So a question that I get asked a lot is, should I be having a protein powder and do I actually need it? So normally with the everyday population, I would say, no, don't bother, don't go waste your money. However, I know in sports dietetics, it might be a bit different. Then again, um, this is very individualized. So an everyday person might really enjoy a protein shake for breakfast, which is totally fine. Um, But yeah, so can you just shed some light on um, sports 
dietetics in terms of protein powders. Yeah, absolutely. And I tend to agree with you, Tess, there is that, you know, the population, including athletes, tend to um, overconsume protein because it's just been drilled into them from sports supplements and, and, you know, social media and all these sort of things like protein, protein, protein. Um, But again, generally what I'll see is that lunch and dinners tend to have huge amounts of protein, whereas breakfast tends to be the lowest protein meal of the day. Mm -hmm. And most, um, you know, most athletes tend to train both morning and night. So when we talk about recovery, we're not just talking about that 30 to 60 minute window. We're talking about 24 hours a day. So you can have a really good quality meal, but then go and eat crap for the rest of the day. You're still not going to be recovering properly. Mm -hmm. So um, protein powders, look, they can be very convenient for someone who can't get in a whole lot of food post-training, um, who is in a really big rush on the way to work or uni or whatever it might be. And that could just be the quickest and easiest thing for them to get in that protein hit. Or if they're just an athlete that requires a huge amount of food or energy requirement. Um, but as a general rule, I would say, no, you don't need a protein powder. Um, and it's not worthwhile wasting your money. Um, something that I think that, that, people get caught up in is that they are marketed so well Um, and that's why supplement shops exist because they they do marketing really well um, and they make you believe that these things are going to make you bigger faster stronger leaner whatever it might be Um, and look some of them are fantastic and some of them definitely have their place Um, but as a general rule I would say that most athletes do not need and most of the general population do not need a protein powder Um, start off with some real food start off with some real protein whether that be from milk whether that be from yogurt eggs Um, if you're a vegetarian you know there's nothing wrong with having some tofu for breakfast and making Mm -hmm. that into a a tofu scramble with Mm -hmm. some vegetables so it's as a general I would say no you don't need to there are definitely times where it can come in handy and um, it is going to give that athlete or that person a real benefit yeah the fitness industry is very good at marketing isn't it so um, speaking of that um, I know supplements are huge online at the moment social media we've got all of these influencers promoting supplements um, so I don't actually have a whole lot of knowledge on supplements so some really common ones that I see are you know your BCAAs um, which are your branch chain amino acids um, or your creatine, can you talk us through these and let us know, like, should we actually be buying these or what's the go with these? Yep, so so generally when I start with an athlete, um, it is very common that someone comes to me and they could be on four or five different supplements. Um, and again, it's just because they've walked into their local supplement store and, and asked what's going to help me. Um, and of course, it's, it's the person's job behind the desk to say, you, you know, you're going to benefit from this, this, this. There are some that do have some benefits and there's some that it, it is just really not worthwhile spending some money on. So, um, and I, I did this when I was 17 years old. I walked into a supplement shop saying, you know, I just want to be the best. So mm-hmm. what can you give me? And I think I walked away with $200 worth of supplements. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and something I really want to mention there is that if you are an elite athlete who is potentially getting drug tested, then... There are a lot of supplements out there that, that sound completely safe, that, can, that sound completely legal, but they have a very high potential of um, having some sort of banned substance mm-hmm. in them. So that's what I work with a lot of my athletes, um, particularly with the elite swimmers, is, is teaching them, okay, well, there's certain types of products you need to be very wary of, um, and then making sure that they have been third-party tested, the ones that we are actually going to use. So there are companies... Um, 
Hastar and Inform Sport are these two companies in Australia that test supplements to ensure that there's no banned substances in those. So you're never 100% safe with supplements that you take, but those sort of companies ensure, um, or sorry, provide a little bit more um, confidence when you're taking them. Mm-hmm. So I'll talk about the, the probably the top four that I come across. Um, protein powders is definitely number one, which we've discussed. Uh, creatine, BCAAs, and then pre-workouts are really common as well, and particularly in the general population. Because um, let's be honest, w- when we wake up in the morning, it's it's not really natural to just go and train for 45 minutes to a, an hour and a half to two hours at max mm-hmm. after you've just been sleeping. So pre-workouts tend to make people feel amazing when they're working out, and it, it can be really difficult to turn people off them. Um, but there, you know, if you've ever looked at the ingredients list of a pre-workout, um, you'll realize that there are, you know, so many different ingredients in there with 13 letters or more, um, things that you've probably never heard of. And for good reason, because it's just not things that we typically uh, want to be taking in everyday life. So um, the, the amount of caffeine that are in those things sometimes is is dangerously high as well. So I think people just need to be aware that just because they're on the shelf does not mean that they are safe and does not necessarily mean that they are effective. Mm. So as a, as a general rule, pre-workout, wake up and have caffeine Mm. from a coffee i mean it tastes way way better um and there are definitely other uh, sources of of caffeine out there as well so um that that is one that has a lot of evidence behind it so we do know that caffeine is fantastic for sports performance um and basically it sort of dulls the the pain sensories in the body so you can push harder and for longer without feeling that pain Um, but there is definitely a cap on how much your body can handle. Um, and I've, I've spoken to athletes about this and they say, yeah, yeah, I feel fine. Some of these things don't happen instantly. Um, and you need to be mindful of the next five years or the next 10 years, if you continue taking these things and the long-term effect that they can have on your body. Um, so pre-workouts are definitely not required. Um, the other thing that I see a lot of is BCAAs. And as a general rule, I don't recommend these because, Basically, what BCAAs are um, is just uh, amino acids, as the name suggests. And most of us are going to get everything that we need from the protein that we eat in our bodies. Um, and we've got enough enough um, muscle sort of turnover, basically, is what it's trying to provide our body with. Um, and it's just not essential. And you just don't need to be spending money on, on BCAAs. There's very, very few cases that I would recommend BCAAs for somebody. Um, and then creatine. So... Creatine is generally used to build mass for people, um, particularly in sort of gym industry and things like that. Um, and yes, there is some really good evidence behind it, but generally, you know, as a, as a rule, I will start with the food. We can create fantastic results from food alone. Um, and as the word suggests, supplements are only there to supplement food. Mm-hmm. So you know, when I'm talking to people, I like to funnily enough talk about sports nutrition as a bit of a cupcake. Um, you know, you have to have the base of the cake right before you can ice it. Mm, so the base of the one. cake is, you know, your breakfast, your lunch, your dinner um, and the snacks in between. And then we've got the icing on the cake, which is our sports foods. And by sports foods, I mean what you're having before and what you're having after. Um, so that's, you know, the 19%. So we've got the base of the cake being the 80% of your performance, the, the icing being 19% of your performance. And then the last 1% is the sprinkles on top. And that's the supplements. Mm-hmm. So unless you have 99% of your diet right, the supplements aren't going to achieve anything. Um, and, and nine times out of 10, 
you're going to get the results that you desire from food alone. Mm. Wow. So we can all save a lot of money there, can't we? Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So um, I actually had a viewer question on Instagram for this one. Um, So someone wrote in saying that they're training about five to six times per week at their local um, fitness center, um, but they're not seeing the body composition results they want. So weight loss and um, building up lean um, muscle tissue. So what would you say to this? Like, what do you think some common mistakes might be in their diet or maybe what they're doing outside of the gym on the weekends, etc.? So this is something I, 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 people walk in and say, I want to lose body fat and then gain lean muscle. And look, this is very contradicting because it, it is really, really difficult for the body to lose body fat whilst gaining lean muscle. It's not impossible, but generally with clients, I'll say we need to focus on one and then we can focus on the other. And that's why you'll see people going through you know, that typical bulking phase, mm-hmm. um, lovely word that is, and then the shredding phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because the body will naturally, when it was gaining lean muscle, will naturally want to gain a little bit of body fat with that because you have to be in a calorie surplus, um, to be gaining lean muscle and then vice versa as well to lose body fat, you need to be in an energy deficit. So you can't generally gain muscle whilst being in an energy deficit. So first and foremost, two different goals right there. Um, and, and what I find is when people, if they've got body fat to lose, when they lose that body fat, they naturally just feel stronger, fitter, faster. Um, and it probably looks like they've got more muscle anyway. So first of all, pick one and go with it. And then if you're not happy um, when you get to that, then you can focus on the other. Um, and, and, you know, I think there are so many different variables that can come into that. Um, I think we, we probably think that training is 80% of our results and 20% is nutrition where it's kind of vice versa. So people put so much effort into their training, which is fantastic, and their exercise schedules, but then they're forgetting that food is, is what's going to provide the body composition results. So probably the biggest thing is is focusing food around those training sessions. Um, and again, what I'll, one of the mistakes I see with this is that people work out in the morning, they're feeling fantastic, the endorphins are going crazy after they've worked out, so they think, okay, well, if I'm trying to lose weight... Um, I won't eat breakfast mm. because I feel good right now. I'm feeling motivated. It's first, you know, first thing in the morning. And then as the day goes on, it's the you know, animal instinct kicks in and they just get starving. So they will go um, for foods that are very, you know, energy dense. So high fat, high sugar foods, um, which ruins all their hard work. Whereas what I would typically sort of advise people is if you're going to work out in the morning, then make sure you support that training session and, and don't be afraid to eat a big breakfast. Um, it's going to help you control your appetite throughout the rest of the day. So, you know, as we spoke about before, having those carbohydrates before training, having them after training, making sure that you're having some protein so that you're full, um, making sure that, you know, you're not afraid of having some healthy fats in there because we know that they are going to keep you fuller for longer. Mm. Um, and then lastly, but certainly not least, is the fiber component. Um, and I think we get so caught up in the, you know, the macros counting and let's get our fiber, you know, let's get our fat, um, carbs and protein in, and we're forgetting that we need veggies. Mm. Um, and, and this can really, really, um, you know, we know the health benefits of eating our vegetables, but also in terms of body composition, it keeps us fuller for longer. Everything in our body tends to work a little bit better, um, you know, your, your gut is healthier, bowels are emptying properly, all these sorts of things that make us feel better. Um, 
and and it's usually the last thing that people want to eat. I think um, the fiber topic is really important. Every time someone comes to see me, the first thing I do is always um, increase their fiber if I'm doing a meal plan or something. And I think it's the one of the most important things for anyone who's on, say, um, a weight loss journey or just wanting to eat a bit of a bit more of a healthier diet. So. Yeah, that's a really great one. And I think too, also adding to that um, question is like looking at the overall diet, um, not only during the week, but like also what's happening on the weekend. So like you'll see people who eat really healthy Monday to Friday and then come the weekend, they go out and have um, probably a bit too much alcohol. They eat out and they're kind of like undoing all of that really good work that they do on the weekend. So if that sounds like you, I would suggest like having a little treat during the week as well. Like I put chocolate on meal plans sometimes for people and they're like, what? I'm allowed chocolate. But I think it's such an important thing to um, to do that you are allowed that balance um, with your diet. Um, So the next question I have, um, it's kind of um, coming off that, you know, fitness centers. So at the moment we do see a lot of the um, body composition scanners that are in um, a lot of gyms and fitness centers around the country. Now, um, obviously there's a few different types that you can use. Um, in your experience, um, how accurate do you think these are? I know that we also have um, a DEXA scan um, and that you also do skin folds. Mm-hmm. So can you shed some light on these? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the, these sort of machines are widely available now um, and usually a very cheap alternative to, to getting something done like a DEXA machine. Um, in terms of evidence-based, gold standard is definitely a DEXA machine. Um, and... You know, there's just no denying that. There's so much evidence on that. And, and these other sort of machines just do not hold the same evidence as a DEXA scan and also skin folds as well. So typically what I'll do in um, a one-on-one consultation is offer skin fold um, caliper body composition measurements. So basically that just gives us an idea of your subcutaneous body fat. And if you're getting that measured by the same person every time who is Isaac accredited, um, so... Isaac Level 1 accreditation is something that most sports dietitians should have, um, then you know you can compare those measurements and, and those measurements can be done every two, three weeks if you wish and you're going to get a very, very sort of credible and reliable and accurate reading of your body fat levels. If you're looking for your overall body fat percentage, then as I said, DEXA scans are the gold standard. Um, but there's certainly some pros and cons to everything. So the, the time of day that you get those measured, um, what you've had to eat and drink, the type of training that you've done the day before, all those sorts of things can have an impact on your results. So with these ones that are available at gyms, look, I, they don't have the same reliability um, but it doesn't mean to say that they don't have their place as well. So if, if you've got uh, scanning machines at your local gym um, and it's just quick and easy to do that, then by all means get them done. But just be mindful that there are so many variables when comparing your results. So try and get this, those scans done first thing in the morning in a fasted state um, when you've done the same training session the day before. So you've got the same amount of glycogen in the muscles or a similar amount of glycogen in the muscles. Um, your hydration state needs to be very similar. Um, all these sorts of things really make a difference to the results and can change the amount of body fat that's shown in the scans and the amount of lean mass that's shown in the scans. So 
I think I've seen too many people come in and show me and they've done an eight-week challenge and they've got it done at different times of the day and all of a sudden their body fat's gone up and their lean muscle's gone down when they were trying to do the opposite. Mm. And they have a, you know, a bit of a panic attack saying, I've been trying so, so hard. So I guess the take-home message is if you want the most accurate, go and get a DEXA scan or go to someone who can do some skin folds, so someone who is um, Isaac accredited. But if going to a gym and getting a scan done at your local gym is the quickest um, and most convenient option, then that's fine. Just make sure when you're comparing results, you're getting them done by the same machine um, in the same sort of circumstances each time. Yeah, definitely. And I think too, like those um, body composition scanners are a lot more affordable. And I know like a lot of people probably wouldn't be able to afford the DEXA scan. So completely up to you, your own personal choice. I might just add to that also, I know like 90% of my listeners are actually female. So um, if you're going in for one of those scans and you're about to approach your menstruation, that's also another huge, huge one. Yeah. I know personally, I fluctuate two to three kilos every every month when it happens. So I think that's also really important to notice as well. Um, so while we're still on the gym topic and... Um, Anyone that follows me on Instagram will know that I've probably had a couple too many rants about this in the past. Um, but, you know, speaking of all of the eight-week challenges and stuff that we see, um, 1,200-calorie diets, it seems to be like the golden number that the fitness industry just runs with. Um, I've spoken about this before, saying that I, I think it's very detrimental. And when I was doing some research on it, it's actually the metabolic needs for a four- to five-year-old so that's crazy to think that so many people are following these very low calorie restrictive diets. Um, do you see many athletes coming to you, um, coming off, you know, like an eight week challenge or eating so little? Can you shed some light on this? I think um, the, the 1200 calories has definitely come from, from more of a gym background. Um, I think I'm quite fortunate in, in a lot of the athletes that I see that they do want to eat food because most athletes know that food has such an important benefit to their performance. So they don't try and stick to this 1200 calorie number. They're probably starving from all that. Absolutely. And that's it is, is, is someone who's training twice a day, every day, eating 1200 calories, uh, you know, energy availability would just be um, at such a high risk there. And, and there's so many, you know, 1200 calories is like breakfast, just oh, breakfast. It's it's insane to think that that this number has just now been put across the entire population and said that this is what the entire population needs to be eating. Um, and I, I guess it is something that I see a lot of females talk about that, you know, if, if this is probably in the non-athlete population more so is that the 1200 calorie number must be where everything works perfectly and I'm going to be the happiest person and the healthiest person that I can possibly be. And I you know, there just couldn't be anything more wrong with, with that statement. Um, and, and we, we, you know, coming to see someone in person, um, we can help you find whatever number that might be. But again, I think there's so much more to food and nutrition and, and health and body composition as well than, um, calorie counting. Mm. Um, and I think you get so caught up in this 1200 calories, but look, you could eat 1200 calories of chocolate. Um, and that's not going to provide you with any, I mean, it tastes fantastic. Don't get me wrong, but it's just a number and if if that number is not appropriate for you based on again like menstrual cycle has a big big impact in that coming into your menstrual cycle um most most females will feel hungrier and that's because their metabolic rate has slightly increased so for females the, the metabolic rate changes throughout the entire month so you're trying to stick to 1200 calories throughout the entire month if you haven't been recommended by a professional to be doing that then can be really detrimental to, to your long-term health um, 
and, and you can end up suppressing your appetite, sorry, suppressing your metabolism um, if you are under eating for too long. And particularly if you're trying to do some training on top of that. Mm. Um, so just because somebody said 1200 calories is, is what is the ideal number, do not believe that mm. that's it. You know, there, there's so much more to it. And there's so many different factors that come into, you know, gender, your height, your weight, your lean um, body composition or lean, lean mass, um, hormones, your appetite, the way that you eat. There's just there's so many different factors that can come into how that calorie, that number of calories can affect what actually happens to your body long-term. So yeah, I, it's a it's a, a hard one to convince people otherwise because again, the fitness industry has, has just drilled yeah. that number into a lot of people. I think you can, you can actually go online to all of those like bodybuilding websites and just punch in like your height, your weight, gender, and it gives you like a, if it fits your macros kind of, plan and like when you see a dietitian for an initial consultation it takes one hour before we even start recommending you anything so that in that one hour we are talking about so many other things as Steph just mentioned about you know what you do for a living if you're sitting down um, at work during the day or if you're up on your feet and so many other factors so um, if you are following a don't forget a, the four years yeah, minimum of study for the before, before all the, the science so yeah, if you are, you know, opting for those meal plans from the internet, I would highly recommend um, not following those because it can set you up for more harm than good in the long term. Um, yeah, so if you do want, you know, to get a meal plan um, and you are concerned about how many calories that you do need, I would highly recommend seeing a dietitian um, for that just to make sure that you're not doing any harm. So um, another question I was going to ask you, Steph, is... Now, I love a good sweaty workout and <laughs> you're laughing at me because <laughs> I know you do too. So you are a sweat profiler, I hear. What does that mean? Does that mean that your, your DP on Facebook is like <laughs> you sweaty with, you know? Um, it sounds lovely, doesn't it? So <laughs> what that means is that I've done a course, um, basically sweat profiling or sweat testing is really, really popular, particularly in triathlon. Um, industry and particularly for those who are doing 70.3 or Ironman distances and that's because uh, cramping is you know you can imagine after doing a a race for 10 hours that your muscles are just under so much stress Um, and it's really common that a lot of triathletes will um, get cramps particularly in calves and and thighs and things like that or quads Um, so it's I mean there's so many other sports that it can be beneficial for but they are typically the 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 number one sport that I, that I see who wants sweat profiling done. So what actually is it? Basically we put these patches on certain parts of the body. So for example, um, forearms or forehead is a really easy one to do as well. Um, and we do sort of a training session that replicates, um, as close as possible race conditions. Um, and that means, you know, time of day, um, the, the, temperature, uh, humidity, and then also the type of training session. So if you're going to race outdoors, obviously, then we want to try and make sure that that training session is outdoors. Um, and generally those sessions can run from anywhere from you know 30 minutes to 60 minutes. Um, we take those sweat patches off after they're nice and sweaty um and then yeah it's pretty it's pretty lovely um but it's actually really really fun to do so then we send those off and um somebody analyzes those um and and analyzes the sweat in that and analyzes what uh how much sodium is in that Mm -hmm. so basically we get this um lovely report back that shows us how much sodium or salt essentially um well as some 
how much sodium, sorry, <laughs> someone is losing. Um, and then we can also uh, measure how much sweat they've lost um, just by weighing them before and after a training session um, or that same training session and then create a bit of an individualized uh, plan in terms of hydration. Mm-hmm. So um, it's very common that, you know, you'll see um, athletes, sorry, triathletes in particular needing to take salt tablets or adding sodium um, electrolyte into sports drinks or bars or gels and things like that. And it's just to prevent the muscle cramping um, and dehydration mm-hmm. in particular. So we create this lovely hydration plan for a race um, and it works wonders. It's, it's fantastic. Wow. So if cramping is an issue for you, what, no matter what sport you play, um, then it's, it's can be a game changer. Mm, definitely something to look into. So much more complicated than you think, isn't it? Sure it's is. A lot of science. Um, so the last question is, and this was another um, Instagram question, and it's a quite funny one and I really liked it, hence why I've picked it. But what should someone eat for the gains, the gains. Okay. Right. Yeah, I love this question. Um, yeah. So again, there are so many variables that come into this. Um, but probably the biggest thing I see is that when people are trying to put on on mass, um, the number one thing is that they need to be in an energy surplus. So eating more calories than they're burning up in a day. Um, and for some people, their metabolic rate is so high that that can end up being such a large amount of food. Um, So again, I just see people go straight to supplements, but we're going to get the best effects from food. And then once, um, once we've sort of reached the total amount of food that somebody can possibly handle, um, and if they're not getting the results, then we can add in supplements and things like that. So, um, eating enough, but also quality over rubbish. So rather than going, oh great, I can eat as much food and and as many calories as possible. I'm just going to hit the Macca's drive-through. It's really important that you're eating the right types of food so that your body composition um, is you know being reflected by that so um, and what I mean by that is that you know I assume we're probably typically talking about a male gym goer here Mm -hmm. Um, and if they're going to be eating large amounts of fatty foods um, and saturated fatty foods so just thinking Macca's drive-through because they're trying to gain weight uh, it's very common for males to um get that abdominal weight gain quite mm. easily. And, and that's just male genetics. So rather than just eating a whole lot of rubbish foods, making sure that they are quality. Um, the next thing to consider is the protein and trying to drip feed that protein throughout the day. So rather than just focusing on the post-training meal, we really want to try and drip feed that sort of four to five meals over the day so that the muscle is constantly being fed mm. some sort of protein for, for optimal um, resynthesis. Um, and then once the protein part is there, where you're actually going to get your main gains are from increasing your carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. So again, particularly around the training session so that we're feeding the muscles fuel and then refeeding them fuel so they're not wasting away. Um, and then, you know, if you're not getting the gains and you've got your protein right, then we're bumping up the carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Again, the fat comes into that and the benefits of some of those healthy fats. So your avocado, your salmons, your nuts, your seeds, your peanut butter, your extra virgin olive oil, all those sorts of things um, work wonders in terms of anti-inflammatories and reducing muscle soreness. So if you're a gym goer, then those fats are particularly beneficial, not to mention salmon as well, for um, all the wonderful um, brain health um, and just overall heart health as well. So of course, don't forget your veggies, but (laughs) for the actual gains, once you've got your protein drip fed, very important that you increase your carbs. 
I love that question. So good. Um, I think also you mentioned genetics and I think that's something that a lot of people forget as well. Like, for example, Steph is so much taller than me and there is only so much that a diet can do. So it can definitely help out. But some people um, come in thinking that they, you know, they'll follow a meal plan and they'll look like a Victoria's Secret model or vice versa. They'll look like Arnie, sw- <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean? yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. So I think that that's something definitely yeah, to, to and it can be mind. hard. Um, and often one of the questions I'll ask because this is typically something you know, nineteen-year-old guy will come in saying get me bigger um and i'll say what's your dad look like um and he probably thinks i'm trying to figure out what his dad looks like <laughs> but, yeah. um but it's it's really important to understand that genetics play a massive part of this um so sometimes you've got to have that hard conversation with people and say look until you probably reach a certain age this is as big as you're gonna get yeah just being but um you know self-acceptance with that is huge so, absolutely yeah well, I think that's the end of all of our questions. I would just like to say a huge thank you, Steph, for you answering all of those questions. Um, I just wanted to say also, if you guys have any questions, um, feel free to leave us a comment or reach out to Steph and I if you, say, want to get those gains. Um, but, yeah, thank you so much for lis- listening. Really appreciate it. Um, hit like or subscribe so you can be updated with more um, nutrition sciences and hear from some of your favorite nutrition professionals. Thank you so much for having me along, Tess, and thank you to all the listeners. Awesome. Let's go have a wine now. Can't wait. (laughs) See you later, guys. Bye.